0: Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Deuteronomy chapter 24, and we'll be looking at verses 6 through chapter 25, verse 4. So, uh, chapter 24, verse 6 through chapter 25, verse 4 of the book of Deuteronomy. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's word. No man shall take the lower or the upper millstone in pledge, for he takes one's living in pledge. If a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren of the children of Israel and mistreats him or sells him, then that kidnapper shall die, and you shall put away the evil from among you. Take heed in an outbreak of leprosy that you carefully observe and do according to all that the priests, the Levites, shall teach you, just as I commanded them. So you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way when you came out of Egypt. When you lend your brother anything, you shall not go into his house to get his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you lend shall bring the pledge out to you. And if the man is poor, you shall not keep his pledge overnight." You shall in any case return the pledge to him again when the sun goes down, that he may sleep in his own garment and bless you, and it shall be righteousness to you before the Lord your God. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be sin to you. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sins. You shall not pervert justice due to the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I command you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the bows again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. If there is a dispute between men, and they come to court, that the judges may judge them, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence, according to his guilt, with a certain number of blows. Forty blows he may give him, and no more, lest he should exceed this, and beat him with many blows above these, and your brother be humiliated in your sight. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Thus far the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. O Father, please give us insight and understanding into your Word, even as we come to this particular chapter of Scripture, where there are quite a number of of laws. We are certainly in the section of Deuteronomy uh, that deals with uh, minute laws, laws that are very detailed about various and specific actions in different areas of society. And Lord, these can be uh, very difficult for us to, to understand as a whole and to apply to our lives. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would give us grace, that you would help us, and that we would see the need to treat others well, and that we would understand what is required of us in your Word. And Lord, confessing our own weakness, we also pray that even as your word here teaches us how we are to live, we pray that by your Spirit and by your Son giving the Spirit, that you would enable us so to live. For Lord, we do ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this this chapter of Scripture is all about the way that you treat other people. It's all about um, treating other people fairly with respect, treating other people with love, and certainly we are living in a time when living decently towards others is on the wane. More and more people are being treated with hostility, and they treat others with hostility. Men go about hating others and being hated by others. This is becoming more and more common, and if the trajectory continues, it can only get worse. Now, as Christians, we have to understand that this is not something that is surprising. Uh, It, in some ways, is a deterioration from the condition of society in general in perhaps recent decades, but it is not overall a surprising thing. Uh, Anytime a society gives up God and turns away from God, it will always lead to great hostility between various groups of people, various factions. It will always lead to hatred, and this is exactly what we see. If a people— turn away from God, ungodliness must prevail. And we even see this emphatically today, and very ironically, from those who claim to be those who are in the right and who are most loving and accepting, actually being those who are the most aggressive uh, in um, treating others with great hostility. And again, we should not be surprised by this. This is something that is normal. The scriptures, however, teach us that we are to treat one another with love, not love in the way the world defines it, not love such that we can prop up our own um, self-proclaimed morality, but that we might actually treat other people with love. For the Christian, our life must be conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Though hatred everywhere is exalted, Christians must be characterized by love. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ requires. He says, by, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Love is the great distinguishing characteristic of the Christian. And if you read through, for instance, 1 John, you'll see this over and over again. The great commandment, the thing that is required of you, is love. If you were to ask what's the sum of all the commandments, it is you are to love God and you are to love other people. And if you as a Christian live contrary to this principle of love by treat, treating other people poorly— it actually is a poor witness to the gospel. People will not be able to tell that you are a Christian. And in fact, if you continue to live that way, it might even prove that you're not a Christian. Uh, living a life of love because Christ lived a life of love is required in the scriptures. And here, and here we have a very detailed look at a number of different situations that show what that actually means in minute detail. Uh, when you treat others... Uh, when you're interacting with others in various contexts, what does it actually look like to treat others with love, to treat other people fairly? Now, this passage falls roughly under the rubric of the Eighth and the Ninth Commandment. Um, These two commandments, I think, often go together. If you try to oppress someone by taking from them things that are not yours, that often carries along with it uh, uh, dishonesty. And so, uh, we're at a section of Deuteronomy where it can be a little bit more difficult to parse out exactly which commandment Moses is speaking of. But the point is, uh, is that whether we're talking about the eighth or the ninth commandment, uh, the scriptures condemn all forms of oppression of those who are weaker than yourself. And that's really where the emphasis falls in this particular passage. The, the passage is addressed to those who are in a places of power, to those who um, are in some ways have influence in society, And the exhortation is that you are not to oppress those who are weaker than you. You are not to take advantage of others. Now, I am very much aware, even as I use the word oppression, there's really no way around it. The the scriptures speak of um, oppression all the time, and we are to rightly understand what is meant by oppression. I'm very much aware that speaking about oppression brings into the realm of conversation um, certain modern categories, particularly from uh, neo-Marxist thought that is so common today where uh, all kinds of people are said to be oppressed or abused. Uh, and what we're going to see here, and we, we do need to interact with this in light of the, the fact that this passage deals with how you are to treat others who are weaker than yourself, uh, what we're going to see is, is that the, the way the scriptures describe your obligation to treat someone uh, who is below you in certain respects with regard to uh, power and wealth, that sort of thing. Uh, that that is The thing that is required of you is very different from the neo-Marxism that is around today. Uh, The the Marxism that is around today will divide people up into two different groups, and if you belong to one group, you're oppressed. If you belong to the other group, you are an oppressor. Uh, What we'll see is that that is inherently a perversion of justice and is, in fact, very often used... To oppress others. And so it actually is a violation of the principles that we find uh, in this very very passage itself. One of the things that we'll also see, though, in this this passage as we consider the way in which the scriptures speak to thoughts that are prevalent today is that there is a kind of, you know, if we think of the opposite of of Marxism, we think of uh, capitalism, and there is, in some sense, a kind of capitalism not that capitalism is necessarily wrong but there is a kind of capitalism where you where you believe that you as long as you make a, a transaction that is legal that you have you have done all of your obligation to be fair towards another person what we'll see is that that's also not what the scriptures require that there is in fact a demand an obligation on you when you are treating other people dealing with other people in business whether you're tre- dealing with other people uh, in uh, lending, whether you're dealing with other people in court or in the church, in all of these situations, there is a requirement that you do take into account the poor. And it is an obligation for you. You are not acting justly if you simply make legal transactions that end up taking advantage of, of the poor. Uh, that, that is not what the Scriptures, in fact, require. And so we'll see here that even as we deal with these minute laws, that they do speak very much to the issues of the day that the, the ethic of the Scripture is perfect, and uh, it is that which is revealed by God, and it is Christians who, in obedience to even what Deuteronomy says, uh, with regard to the way in which we treat others, it is, it is in this obedience that the world will know that we are those who are actually loving. And this is, in fact, what is required of us. So, now we'll look at this passage under three headings, and we'll kind of be jumping around in the passage. Um, it can be a little bit difficult to see the, the order and the structure of the passage. And so what we're going to do is we're going to organize the passage under three headings. First is the laws treating, uh, concerning treating others fairly in commerce, so in all areas of business. And then we'll look at laws treating, about treating other people's fairly in court. And then we'll look at laws about treating others fairly in the church. So those will be the, the three ways that we look at this particular passage, and there will be various opportunities to comment on different sections of the passage uh, throughout. So the first section is laws about treating others fairly in commerce or in um, economic situations in general. Now, this itself can be divided in some ways into two parts. There are a number of laws given in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 6 through 25, 4 that deal with lending, so it's fair treatment in lending, and then others more directly, fair treatment in business. And so the, the areas that deal with lending are particularly verse, verse 6 and then verses 10 through 13. And these deal with the way in which pledges are taken for a loan. There are some limits on it. It's, it's not necessarily a just thing if two parties agree to terms on a loan. There are other limits uh, that, that must be in place. Uh, in order to make something just and right. So, for instance, in verse 6, notice there are limits to the kind of pledges that can be taken. No man shall take the lower or the upper millstone. That could that could also be translated as and. It could be either one. The lower or the upper millstone in pledge, for he takes one's living in pledge. There the idea is a pledge would be something like collateral for a loan. And the idea is that it is unjust for you to um, take as a pledge something that deprives someone of their ability to make ends meet and to earn a wage uh, of their livelihood. Um, it, w- it is not just and it is a violation of the Eighth and the Ninth commandment, to take something that would um, not allow another to be able to work uh, in this life and to provide for himself. That would be an, an unfair principle. Um, and this is something that we saw before as well, several weeks ago when we dealt with the end of chapter 23, where we uh, noted that Again, not all things that are technically legal from a strict perspective of um, we made this transaction and we both agreed to it, that does not necessarily make it right. Uh, If you remember, we looked at the the example of of Crassus in the first century B.C. in Rome, and he would put out fires in in Rome, and um, if you remember what he would do, he would wait for some house to be on fire, And then he would make a deal with the person as his house was on fire and say, if you sell this to me, your home to me, for basically nothing, then I will put out your fire. And if not, your home will just burn to the ground. Now, in some sense, that was a legal transaction that was made, but it's not a just transaction. It's still a violation of the Eighth Commandment. And the same thing is true here with regard to pledges. Uh, You cannot take as a pledge from someone something that actually deprives them of their ability uh, to work. Now, in verses 10 through 13, there's another there's another set of rules that are given with regard to pledges. The first one in verses 10 and 11 deals with the necessity of waiting outside. Uh, the idea here is that you, you simply have no right in collecting for, for, from someone uh, part of the loan to go in and take something by force. They have the right to privacy and your, um, your uh, right to have a portion of their income by, via the loan does not give you the right to... Uh, to invade their privacy. There needs to be a dignity and a respect that is maintained for all people and a, a assuming of the good of another person. And so there is a command, particularly as you deal with those who are poor in the context of the passage, to wait outside and in this way to respect uh, others. So that's the second law with regard to uh, pledges in the context of a loan. The third law that is given uh, is in verses 12 and 13, and that deals particularly with Uh, with the poor and the need to return a pledge quickly. So if you receive a pledge from another person, you must return it as swiftly as you possibly can, Uh, particularly if the person is poor and is dependent upon that pledge uh, to live. You must have regard for another person in his poor condition, and you must uh, treat them fairly and go out of your way then to return uh, these things. Now, in some ways it can be difficult to think how these kinds of things apply to our lives today, we don't have the same kind of personal, person-to-person loans um, as happened in Israel. Typically, people just go to a bank. These principles would apply to a bank. Um, a bank would be obligated to uh, deal uh, in ways that are fair with others. Uh, and yet, even though we do not have the formal kinds of pledges given for personal loans in the same way today, this these principles still do apply to your situation whenever you borrow or lend anything to another person, these same principles, the idea of um, you must return something that, that uh, was lent to you as soon as you possibly can. And to return it in the condition with, with, uh, that you got it in uh, is a matter of, uh, of treating that person fairly. And if you fail to do this, you have violated the Eighth Commandment, even if you eventually return it. It's still a violation of the Eighth Commandment against stealing, you have stolen from the person. It's also a violation of the ninth commandment. You have been dishonest with that person. You have have used something beyond the amount of time that you actually uh, needed it. And it is, in this way, uh, oppressing another person. Um, And so that's the the laws that are given with regard to lending. Now, notice there are a number of laws that are given with regard to business as well. These appear in verses 14 and 15, 17 to 22, and then also the very last verse, which is uh, chapter 25, verse 4. And the idea again is that it's given in the context of those who own businesses, those who are wealthy. Um, And the basic idea of these kinds of laws is that you must give to every person what is due to them. Um, So if someone works for you, you must be quick in giving them their wages. If you withhold a wage from another person, you have violated the Eighth Commandment. Even if you eventually give it, you have stolen from the person, that's that's the idea. You must give to everyone uh, as is their due. And if we were to, to, to take a, a, one of these verses that is kind of the, the, a, a verse that illustrates the main principle behind all of these uh, laws with regard to business, it would be the last verse. Do not muzzle an ox as it treads out the grain. Uh, as the Apostle Paul points out when he applies this in the New Testament, he says that you know, God's not really concerned about the oxen. He's concerned about you. He's concerned about the way that you treat other people. And the idea is if you muzzle an ox as it's treading out the grain, you are preventing the ox from receiving benefit from its labor. It is laboring for you, but it can receive no benefit because you've muzzled. The only possible uh, kind of compensation an ox could have is that it would be able to sustain itself as it's treading out the grain by eating some of the grain. But if you muzzle an ox, then it can no longer, it can no longer receive any compensation for work. The idea then, in the New Testament, this is actually applied to to ministers receiving uh, uh, wages from the church. The idea is that, as the the Lord Jesus Christ says, the the worker is worth his wage. Therefore, it is a principle of good and sound business. If you are not to steal from another person, if you're not to violate the eighth or ninth commandment, you must uh, be sure to pay somebody uh, if they are working for you. Anytime someone does any kind of labor for you, uh, there needs to be at least an offering of, of paying the person. Now, friends sometimes do things for free for other, other friends. and There's nothing wrong with that. But the principle is is that if someone works for you, then it, you owe them. You, you owe them because the worker is worth his wages and you shall not muzzle an ox as it treads out the grain. Now, this is especially emphasized in verses 14 and 15 with respect to the poor. So when, the, when a poor person in particular uh, works for you, then you must... Uh, pay them quickly. You must pay them at the soonest possible convenience. And notice what the, what the text says. If you do not do this, as it says in the beginning of verse 14, you have oppressed the person. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages. The idea is if you do not do this, if you withhold payment from a person, then you have actually oppressed the person. This is different than the, the Marxist idea of oppression, but it, this is the, the biblical idea. This is true, real oppression. If you withhold a wage from a person, then you have stolen from them and you have violated the Eighth Commandment. And so, again, there is a particular rego- regard that the Scriptures have for the poor. And notice this regard for the poor is then highlighted again in verses 17 through 20. Verse 17 is sort of the, the heading of this brief section from 17 to 22. is all one little section. And the idea is that you are not to pervert the justice of those who is a stranger, who's a fatherless, or a widow. You were you not to, to, to do those kinds of things for those who are the weakest and most vulnerable in society. You'll notice as well that as Moses speaks more to your requirement to care for those who are weak and poor among you, that he actually grounds this in redemption. He does this twice. So there's a, a heading verse in verse 17, you're not to pervert the justice for these people. Then in verses 18 and 22, Bracketing the specific laws that are given, there is this command. You are to remember that you were strangers and slaves in the land of Egypt, and God redeemed you. The idea is, is that since God has worked such a great salvation for you, caring for you when you were poor, and providing for you and saving you, you also must treat others with dignity and respect. You must also care for the poor who are among you. This is an obligation. If you do not do this, you have violated the eighth and the ninth commandment. And this is again grounded in redemption. And in this way, it's not just a sin. If you fail to do this, it's not just a sin against another person, the, the, the weak or the poor person. It's a sin against God because you are not acting in a way that's consistent with the gospel by which you yourself have been redeemed. If you think about the way Jesus speaks about a similar issue in Matthew chapter 18, the idea is, you know, um, there's a person that owes an incredible amount of debt. The king forgives him all his debt. And then he goes out and uh, demands uh, payment from someone who owes him a much smaller amount by comparison. And the idea is, you know, you were forgiven all this debt. How can you not forgive another? Well, the same thing is true here with regard to uh, paying the wages of others, caring for the poor. You yourself were poor. And God has saved you and given you an inheritance which is beyond comprehension. If God's done this for others, then you certainly yourself must also care for those who are poor. You cannot oppress them. Uh, that is the logic that is given uh, in, uh, in Deuteronomy in this very passage. Now, the thing that is specifically mentioned in verses 19 through 21 with regard to what you are to do for the poor, and here we show, that it can be seen that there's an, there is an obligation even in the way that you do business that you do it with an eye to the poor. The scriptures recognize the right of private property. Um, there are limits to what a poor person can have from a wealthy person. It's not just they can have whatever they want. But the idea is is that if you forget a small part of your harvest and, and it, it falls to the ground, the idea is you're just to leave it. This is to be considered provision for the poor. Um, now, we don't have the same kind of harvest today where um, you know, many, many people are landowners and there are poor people that go through the property of other people. The situation doesn't come up but the, as much. But the idea is, is that there is to be um, not such a strict clinging to every single thing that you have, that there is no provision for those who are in need. Uh, that's the idea. That, and it's actually commanded here. So even though there is a right, the thing that the, these wealthy uh, people have are, are theirs by right, uh, if they cling to 100% of it without any regard for the poor they have violated the commandments of god they violated the commandments of god now if we apply this to or if we ask how does this relate to the modern ideas that are out there particularly marxism and capitalism as these are the things that are, the ideas that are relevant for passages like this uh, it's important to note again that there is an obligation to the poor in business which means that a kind of unbridled capitalism whereby someone thinks as long as I work within the law and gain every dollar that I can, that I have in this regard uh, acted fairly and justly, uh, this is is wrong. Um, Again, it's not to say that capitalism itself is wrong. Uh, Very often capitalist societies will uh, have laws that restrict um, a perfectly free market And that is usually for the sake of those who are weaker in society. And the point that we have to recognize is that those kind of laws are necessary. Um, It's it's not in accordance with the scriptures that there would be a completely free market where there are no restrictions whatsoever. There do need to be provisions for the poor. There do need to be provisions for the poor. And insofar as a society... Uh, recognizes the right to private property, but also recognizes that there, that there do need to be provision for the poor. Uh, this is, in fact, just. So Some combination of those ideas uh, do, in fact, need to be present. However, and this is important as we think about the, uh, the claims of Marxism, um, very often today, um, at least in some circles, um, passages like this and other places in Deuteronomy or Leviticus will be used to try to say that the Bible teaches redistribution. So one of the fundamental tenets of Marxism is that there's going to be a forced redistribution. The idea is that a, the, the poor basically have a right to the wealth of the rich, and so there can be heavy taxation whereby the, the poor then receive uh, large amounts of redistributed wealth. But you'll notice here, and we've seen this in other places as well where there have been provisions that have been made for the poor, that forced redistribution is actually very much contrary to the principles of this passage. The poor do have a right to something from the wealthy. Um, but it's simply the leftovers. They do not have a right to the substance of the property of the wealthy. And there is no sense in which a just society anywhere in the scriptures uh, is defined as one in which everyone has exactly the same amount. And that's one of the fundamental tenets of Marxism, that there must be, everyone must be exactly equal. But here, here, um, the idea is, and we've seen this in other places as well in the book of Deuteronomy, the poor have a right to some things, but only in so far as it does not affect the fundamental property of the one who actually owns these very things. We saw this, again, at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 23, where these, these principles actually come out even more clearly. If you remember, when you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure. So you can have whatever you want as you're going through another person's property. But you shall not put any in your container. So it is, you can have whatever you need for the moment, but there can be no container that you take whereby um, you affect the substance of the property. There's a, there's a Fundamentally, the right of the private property of the person is maintained. And the idea then, the reason this is important, is because if you violate this right, you have violated the Eighth Commandment that is in fact stealing. So um, one of the things that is then put forward with the idea of Marxism in all, in all the various neo-Marxist um, flavors, so to speak, that are there today, is that there is this need for all people to be equal. But it's important to note that according to the scriptures and the the presupposed rights that are the basically frame of of talking about all of these various things in the scriptures, uh, if you are to pursue redistribution and equality in terms of everyone having exactly the same amount, the only possible way to get there is by a massive violation of the Eighth Commandment. And, and these passages really do not help you uh, get there. Uh, you do not have a right, even in Israel where there, were, there was some kinds of redistribution, you do not have a right to the, the wealth uh, of another person. Uh, to, to do so would be, to, to go after this would be, in fact, uh, a, a violation of the Eighth Commandment. Now, in some ways, again, um, there are errors with a kind of unbridled capitalism, and there's certainly errors with Marxism. And in one sense, we could describe these errors as greed on the one hand and envy on the other. So a kind of greed is wrong, whereby you claim everything for yourself without any regard for another person. The scriptures say that's wrong. That would be that that kind of greed and all actions that are related to that, uh, those kinds of actions are in fact wrong. On the other hand, with Marxism, there is an enshrining of envy. Uh, If I do not have it, then because I do not have it, I have a right to this thing of others. I I envy the wealthy for the things that they have. And you're basically putting in place laws whereby you can then take for the person you're envious of. Uh, Envy and greed uh, are the the two twin sins in this regard. And the point is, as we think about the way that Deuteronomy chapter 24 and into chapter 25 relates to these ideas, the point is that both of them are wrong. Both of them uh, are wrong. There is a right to private property. There is a right to... Uh, that you have to doing business and even to making a profit, uh, but there must be some kind of concern for the poor. So this is what the scriptures say with regard to treating others fairly in commerce and this is where the way we need to think through as Christians how we are going to live. Uh, these ideas are extraordinarily influential today and all Christians will be living quite counterculturally by trying to obey the scriptures as, they, as it speaks about how to treat others fairly uh, and justly. And yet this is what we are called to do. Now, the other area that is spoken of here, the second area, is treating others fairly in court. So the idea is the justice system. And this is particularly found in verse 7 of chapter 24, verse 16, and then chapter 25, verses 1 through uh, 3. Chap- uh, verse 7 of chapter 24 deals with kidnapping. The idea is that uh, kidnapping is a crime that's punishable uh, punishable by death. Uh, A very similar law is found in the book of Exodus as well, uh, in chapters 21 through 23. Um, That's always said to be a a very heinous sin. One of the things that we see um, from this kind of law is that clearly the death penalty is something that is uh, just and right. Uh, And again, any kind of kidnapping would be uh, quite a, a, a vicious and heinous sin. Now, the principle of justice that's found in verse 16 is that fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. And this is a fundamental principle of justice. Uh, any kind of, of sentence that's passed against a person must be for the sins that he himself commits. Not that the sins of another person commit, but that he himself commits. Now, the, the sin that is particularly emphasized here that, that must be avoided Uh, and this would have been probably more common in the ancient world than it is today, is that a a father cannot be put to death for the sins of his son, nor the son for the sins of the father. There was uh, a more communal uh, view of the family. And so there would have been a greater temptation to put to death a father for the sins of his son, and, and vice versa. But the idea is that the more general principle that applies to every single situation is that nobody can be condemned for the sins of another person. And this is basically repeated as a presupposition in verse 1 of chapter 25 as well. If there is a dispute between men and they come to court, that the judges may judge them, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. A righteous person is righteous in the context of a civil court because he does something that's right. A guilty person, a wicked person, is, is, is guilty in the context of a court when he does something that's wrong. There is no other consideration that can ever be brought into Uh, a a justice system. It must only be the actions of the individual. And again, this is where uh, Marxism and all of its neo-Marxist applications uh, suffer greatly, when there is the reason why they're so unjust, is because it sets up people into classes. So classically Marxism does this with regard to class. So there is the there is the working class, there are inherently those who are right, they're the ones who are oppressed. And then there are uh, the wealthy class, and those are the ones who are wrong. They're the ones who are oppressing. Today we have the same thing with race. It's what critical race theory is. So if you're, if you're black, then you are the oppressed class and, you, and you're right. If you're white, you are the oppressing class and you're wrong. Now, uh, black people can do right and they can do wrong and they need to be judged accordingly. White people can do right and they can do wrong and they need to be judged accordingly. It is in a perversion of justice as a putting to death someone for the sins of another, if you divide up people by class and then you judge them based on whether or not they, they fall an, into a particular class. The same thing happens with gender. This is what feminism does. So with feminism, uh, another, this would be another neo-Marxist uh, application. Uh, with gender, there is male and female. And the males are wrong, they're the oppressors, so toxic masculinity, that sort of thing. And, and women are correct, they're the ones who are the, the oppressed. This is, would be again uh, condemning men for the sins of others, and it would be justifying women for the sake of the righteousness of, of others. Uh, it is a perversion of the ju- of justice as it is found in the scriptures. Another uh, neo- neo-Marxist kind of uh, application is sexuality, and this happens with heterosexuals versus uh, the LGBTQ movement. The LGBTQ movement's the oppressed, so therefore they're right, and the heterosexuals are uh, the oppressing, therefore they are wrong. Uh, the idea is, is that uh, Whenever there is a division of people into various classes, and they are judged by the class that they that they uh, um, that, that they belong to, that this is in fact a perversion uh, of justice. It's a violation of the Eighth Commandment. It's a violation of the Ninth Commandment, as Moses uh, has so uh, expressed it. And this is really what's wrong with the the kinds of arguments that are used today to argue about the injustice of systems. It's not to say that systems are inherently just, there are many unjust systems. The problem is, is that there is often this kind of neo-Marxist assumption in the way that it's argued for. And so for instance, like a, something like a systemic racism today is argued for on the basis of there being implicit bias in people who are white. That not, never mani- it doesn't have to manifest itself in any of the things that they actually do. It's just an implicit bias that's so prevalent that it affects uh, the system as a whole. Uh, this would be putting this would be a violation of justice because it is imputing to people wickedness for things that cannot be proved one way or another. Um, it's not to say again that there that there are not problems with systems, um, but the we need to be careful and think through things as Christians, uh, as we think through the kinds of sins that are alleged to be happening in society, whether or not they are they are assuming things that are contrary to the scriptures. Uh, and this is what we have very often today, and it's why we do need to talk about them as we, as we discuss these kinds of things uh, in this section of Deuteronomy. Now, the last two verses that deal with fairness in courts are, come in uh, verses 2 and 3, verses 2 and 3, where there is actually uh, a, an allowance for corporal punishment for various sins. And so, one of the things that this shows, particularly in verse two, you know, someone can be beaten for their sins. Uh, this would be in a civil context. Um, again, this is not something that's done today. It's important to note, though, that as this is found in the scriptures, it shows that this is not inherently wrong. Uh, there is an aversion to using pain as a punishment for crimes, but there's nothing inherently unjust with that. Um, and one of the one of the, the reasons that's important to think through is that. Um, if this is the case, it's also not wrong for there to be pain, the use of pain uh, as a punishment uh, for children within the home. That's why spankings are not wrong. Uh, it's, it's not a principle that's violating justice uh, to use spankings uh, in the home. And even you know, in Proverbs, it says, if you spare the child the rod, you, will end, up, you, end, you end up hurting the child is, is the idea. Um, and there's a parallel between a father in the home and a judge in the civil sphere. The father is, in, in, very, in a very shr- real sense, the judge of the home. And so if he were to, to uh, say that someone is deserving of a spanking, uh, this would be in fact just, and it has its, finds its parallel in the same kinds of things being said and done in the civil sphere uh, as well. The, the idea is, is that um, a child, and this is where it becomes important to, to think there's a link between the family and the civil sphere. A child who is governed in the home by his father well, such that he is punished for wickedness and he is rewarded for righteousness, he himself is being trained then, that child is being trained to be able to live uh, justly in society where he's under laws uh, made by others. Uh, the, the, The solution to ungodliness in society is godliness in the home. It's fairness and justice within the home. Now, you'll notice, though, there are some limits even to this, though. In verse 3, there are limits. The, the, the strikes can't be more than 40. The idea is that there must be a preservation of the dignity and worth of the person. Uh, if, if more than 40 are given, the Scriptures say this will lead to uh, the, your, your brother who even has done something wrong, and it's recognized in the Scripture, but of him, him basically being disrespected and shamed before you. And it's not consistent with someone who's made in the image of God to, so, to be so debased uh, before you. Now, if we were to apply this to the situation of spanking, it's probably the main area this can be applied today, is, since we do not have uh, beatings in civil, in the civil sphere anymore. Uh, spankings are not wrong, but it's important to recognize that with spanking, it must be done for the sake of the good of the child, which means that when a spanking is administered, it must be done when the parent is in his right mind, when, he, when there's not um, tempers flaring, um, if, if you do find yourself losing control of your anger and you uh, have said that you will spank the child, it's a good idea to uh, perhaps let the other parent administer the spanking or take a deep breath, wait for yourself to be calm, and then administer the spanking calmly, explain to the child what he's done wrong, why he's receiving the spanking, and what he needs to do to uh, apologize for what he's done. Um, this is the kind of thing that's necessary. The idea is that um, there is a limit to what can be done. And... The point of the spanking is to be for the sake of the good of the child. And this is uh, something to keep in mind. Um, Going too far with corporal punishment is, in fact, uh, a sin. It's a violation of, in this sense, the eighth and the ninth commandment, as Moses uh, is explaining it. Spankings can uh, go too far. Just because the Bible teaches that spankings are good, which it does teach, it doesn't mean that spanking in every instance is good. There is such a thing as as abuse that would, would take these things too far. So those are the first two, and this actually deal with most of the verses in the passage. There is um, laws about fair treatment in commerce and laws about fair treatment in court. The last one is laws about treating others fairly in church. Now, you may have noticed as I was reading that verses 8 and 9 seem a bit strange. They don't seem to, be, they don't seem to fit as well into the rest of the discussion. And this is, these are laws about leprosy. Take heed in an outbreak of leprosy that you carefully observe and do according to all that the priests and the Levites teach you, just as I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way when you came out of Egypt. Now, why are there these laws about leprosy in the midst of all these other laws uh, about business about, uh, and about courts? Why are these particular laws here? The idea is is that you're following in the Old Testament the laws and regulations that had to do with leprosy is a kindness to other people. If you do not follow the laws, then you are endangering other people such that they then can become unclean. Um, And there is a sense in which these laws are related to the way in which you treat others. And this is, I think, the reason why Miriam uh, is mentioned in verse 9. If you remember the reason why Miriam got leprosy, She became bitter in her soul towards Moses, and particularly towards Moses' wife, and she spoke against Moses, and therefore she became uh, leprous. The idea is that there was a a connection between her leprosy and the way she acted and her treatment of other people. And the same thing is true. I think that's the the point. Moses is trying to draw a link between those uh, ideas. In the Old Testament, we needed to remember that your sins affect other people, and You have an obligation to pursue holiness in the Old Testament you did, and as you do in the New, as we'll see. You had had in the Old Testament an obligation to pursue holiness and cleanliness before God so that you could, in this sense, treat others fairly within the context of the people of God. And the same is true even today. You are, uh, in this sense, obligated to pursue holiness and righteousness because others benefit from it. And if you are disobedient to the commandments of God, then this also means that this will... This will, um, this will be a disadvantage and it will hurt and harm other people. And so one of the ways in which we then can even maintain treating others fairly within the church is by remembering Miriam, not becoming bitter towards other people, not complaining about others who are, are in the church, and and pursuing a true kind of holiness whereby others can benefit uh, from the spiritual gifts that God himself gives to us to treat others, put others before Ourselves and so even in the church, this then has application. So this is the this is what the the scriptures teach with regard to the eighth and the ninth commandment. There is to be a righteousness that you have. Now we often talk in the abstract about um, you know you're not to to steal from others, you are not to uh, you are not to uh, lie to others. But it can be difficult sometimes to work it out in the details. But notice in the book of Deuteronomy there are many many details that are given to show you what it is to act righteously. And even in these parts of the scriptures, which are not as well known as other parts of the scriptures, and not as read as often, they do teach us how to live wisely and righteously in this world. They, they do teach us what is good, what is right, and even passages like this that are not as well known can still be brought to bear on the ideas of society today. And ultimately, we need to remember as Christians that Christ is the one who will come as king and he, as the king, will establish perfect righteousness and justice in every area of society. In every area of society. That's one of the things that is prophesied over and over again as we think of the, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the king and he will establish justice in the earth. The coastlands will wait for his law because he is the one who is righteous. And it's true that perversions of justice will happen at every area, level of society, in the heart, uh, in, as individuals, in the family, uh, in society as a whole. There will always be perversions of justice, but it is for us as Christians to understand what the scriptures teach about what biblical justice is, to live accordingly, to look to God's law, to know how we are to live, and even more than that, to look to Christ for the strength to be able to live in, in a a godly way, in a wicked and perverse world. That is what we are required to do. We do not have the strength to do it on our own, but Christ has come. He's died for His people. He's been risen from the dead, and He pours out His Spirit on His people to give His people the strength to live in ways that are fundamentally different from the rest of the world. Not fundamentally the same, but fundamentally different. And we as Christians look forward to the coming day when perfect righteousness will be established in the Lord Jesus Christ, as king. But until then, we are called to be his people living justly in the world reflecting the coming of this perfect kingdom, empowered by the spirit so to live and in in our lives then giving a foretaste of the kingdom to come. Let's pray. Oh Father, how we do thank you for your word. How we do thank you for the way in which it does teach us what is right and good and true. Lord, we do pray the same prayer that Augustine has given so many years ago, that you would command what you will, but that you would give what you command. Lord, we're so thankful that you do command us various things. We're thankful, Lord, that you give us so many examples of how to apply these things to our lives. We're thankful, Lord, for the minute details that you give us as you work out uh, for us what it means to keep the Eighth and the Ninth Commandments. Lord, we're, we're thankful for this. It's, it's such a good thing that we have this, to be able to, to, to bring to bear to all of society, all of life, uh, the Word of God. We're thankful, Lord, that you have commanded us these things. We pray now that you would also give us the strength to obey. For we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart that through the preached word your eyes may be opened to behold the glory of Christ more and more.